0: Welcome to the Pin Leader Podcast, where strategic leaders get straight to the topics, strengthening our awareness and sharpening our minds. The Pin Leader Podcast is produced by Roar, a production division of Maze and Associates, LTD. Find out more at www.mazeassociatesltd.com. Now, here is your award winning host, Dr. Shan Gore. Thank you, and welcome back to the Pin Leader Podcast. Uh, I have with me Dawn Bentley, and we're going to be talking about a number of components that have to do with examining accessibility. And this is a topic area that sometimes people see it as part of DEI work, uh, but it truly has a standalone need, um, along with a number of components, that um, having a professional who works in the space is so critically important. In other words, a leader who understands and has the experience to work in this space. And so I'm glad to have Dawn who, she's the president and founder of CARE LLC, uh, which is Community Access, Inclusion, Representation and Equity. Uh, She has over 20 years experience uh, working in the field of disabilities. Uh, She's been an intervention development therapist. Uh, She's worked in a nonprofit sector in the disability field. And she's offered all kinds of accessibility with audits and consultation services, training opportunities, speaking engagements, and she's got a, uh, a booklet out to help with accessibility. But all of that, uh, she's dynamic, uh, and again, she is a leader in her field. So I'd like to welcome Dawn to the show today.
1: Thank you. I'm excited to be here.
0: Yes. So talk a little bit about the passion that you have. This is not something that individuals just kind of get started in and and do. But can you talk
1: about your journey? Absolutely. So I, I, you know, it's funny, I was just having this conversation with someone yesterday that whenever people ask me how long I've been doing this, I say for as long as I can remember, I had an older brother named Joey who had cerebral palsy. So he was 18 months older than me. So I always tell people I was sort of born into the world of disability. I grew up, attending his IEP meetings and learning about his different therapies. So my earliest memories are home visitors coming to our house and talking about services and helping my parents navigate, you know, what, what the community has to offer. So it's really something that I've always been surrounded by and, and immersed in. And so it's something I feel really called to continue to educate the community about.
0: So in with that, with the fact that you had a family member who, again, was directly impacted, who, again, the family is directly impacted, you know, how did you see your role, you, you woke up one day and said, you know, I'm going to just make a difference in this field, to become a professional in this field, I want to do this work, I mean, how did you, uh, you went to school, uh, you obviously got experiences and education with it, but wh- what did that l- journey look like?
1: You know, that's actually a really funny question, because I started in accounting and finance in college. (laughs) Um, (laughs) And then I, you know, because it was, just a natural and organic part of my life. I never really thought about it as a career. And then I I went to college. It was my freshman year of college. I worked at a summer camp and the summer camp was marketed as being inclusive. It was for children with and without disabilities. Wildly enough, my brother and I were actually campers at that same summer camp in the late 80s. So I started working there as just a summer job and I fell in love. And It was at that point that i thought oh my gosh like i could actually do this as a career and do something that i love and so i switched majors and i switched to special education both k through 12 but then also early childhood development and had a secondary certificate In early intervention, you know, as as the years evolved and I was teaching, I then was asked to work at that same nonprofit as their youth director. And I loved it. I loved that work as well. And so I have a really interesting perspective because I've been both on the educational side of things and seen, you know, the work through the school systems, but then also I've worked in the nonprofit side of things as well. I feel really passionately about bringing all of these services together and not duplicating things, but also not being completely disconnected and really helping by professionals working together and collaborating. We can help the parents and the guardians and the family members fill those gaps. That was really how my career evolved. And then my husband and I, we actually have four little ones, and his job has, we've lived in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, West Virginia, and then we have landed here in my hometown. And we had two daughters when we moved back here, and then we had twins during the pandemic. Um, anyone who knows me knows that we call it the twin demic in our house. And <laughs> <laughs> it was a wild, wild time. And at that time, I knew that I wanted to continue in this career and i felt really passionately about it but it was also a really difficult time to navigate with twin premies who had been in the nicu they were diagnosed with hemophilia uh, my supervisor at the time uh, my the director i was working under he offered for me to become a consultant for for the organization and i fell in love with it and it was at that point that my husband and a colleague said you know why don't you start your own thing and so that was how care was born it's just been really exciting to to continue to do say to do the work but it doesn't even feel like work because i love it so much and i could talk about it all day you know anytime i'm i'm doing any of these these things whether it be a training a conversation a podcast whatever it may be it doesn't ever feel like work because it's just something that i love to talk about
0: you know it's interesting you say that because it is a passion obviously a passion of yours and that you lived with that this is not something that uh you saw on TV or you might have you li- really really lived in the trenches and advocated for family but then you've also advocated for others you know when you go in as a now you're a leader in your field right you're a leader and trying to help other leaders navigate it could be leaders of a family that has a child that needs advocacy doesn't know what to do but it also could be a school system it could be an organization that has a workplace Program that needs more accessibility. I saw statistics that you know one in four uh, in the U.S. have a disability, or are uh, 61 million um, actually on the pathway of having or could be, and as we age, would have a disability. And when I saw that number, that means that at some point, everyone that's listening, it could have a disability at any time. I try to say from an inclusion space. Is that you? You just don't know when it could happen, and as we age, just being able to get around, physical mobility, that could be that could be the challenge that you're having. What are your thoughts on that with uh, disabilities in America, with those kind of statistics?
1: It's a really interesting dichotomy, honestly. Um, the disability space holds a lot of really interesting dichotomies. But that being one of them that I that I talk often about is that, interestingly, a lot of people just don't know what they don't know, right? I oftentimes, unless if someone themselves has been impacted by a disability or someone they love has been impacted, they don't think about it. And they don't even realize how inaccessible our world and our community still is. During the TARTA campaign, for example, a couple of years ago, when I would ask people about how they were going to vote, I had a lot of people who know what I do for a living who are dear friends of mine say... I haven't really thought about it. I'm not really sure that I'm open to, you know, putting more money towards something like that when I don't use public transportation. And my response was always, but you could. And the reality is, is that the disability community is one of the few marginalized communities that anyone can become a member of at any given time exactly and yeah so it's really really important and and that statistic that you shared i, I share in a lot of my trainings the one in four you know one in four people that's a pretty large number that's of Americans, (laughs) that doesn't even include the percentage of people who will end up with a child who has a disability or a partner or a spouse or another family member, an aging parent. You know, if you added in all of those percentages with just the number of people who will be impacted by someone in their close circle, that number would skyrocket. And it's really, really important that the community is open to access and understands the meaning of access you know, that's the other piece to it is there are a lot of organizations, well, well well-intentioned, wonderful organizations who consider themselves accessible. And then when someone tries to access the space, the program, the service, they find that it's actually not quite the case.
0: Yeah, I think that's important to emphasize here, because there is a lot of well-intentioned. But I know that uh, when we talk about ableism, you know, can you explain a little bit about ableism because sometimes you run across it it's unintentional it's benign intent but there is ableism that occurs can you explain a little bit about what that is yeah
1: so ableism is an example of an implicit bias and with ableism it's where people you know whether they make a comment or do something that is directly impacting or speaking um even unintentionally against the disabled community. And what a lot of people don't realize is that even people with disabilities can sometimes be ableist. And part of that is that it's so intrinsic because of the fact that as a community, you know, accessibility has not always been at the forefront of everything that we do. And that's a very real reality. I mean, I know many of us who were from, you know, anywhere from the 50s through even the 90s, we went to schools where there was a special wing or a different room or a different area of the building where the kids with disabilities went and nobody talked about it. It was there there in those classrooms and the you know general education classrooms are over here and that's just the way it is. And it was almost like disability was a faux pas. And for that reason, a lot of people have this inherent ableism that they don't even sometimes realize or recognize. The, the The reality is that you have to actively work to be anti-ableist and to be inclusive and to be accessible. And with that comes knowing that you're going to make mistakes. We all do. We're human. That's part of the human growth, but it's a more a matter of once you know better, are you actively doing better?
0: No one is saying that again, inherently that someone would be this way as much as being coming more aware. I think what we're talking about here is becoming more aware of the environment, how you interact with the environment in the context of the interactions that you have with individuals who you assume may be very able to do something but may not or may not even see the world exactly the way that you do being Mm neurodivergent. I totally agree. I think that if we can recognize that we all have biases, we all have them um, and becoming more aware of them is so critically important to the environment and that's what you do uh, with your audits
1: yeah and it's funny because audit um, it's what I call you know what I do my accessibility audits and it Sometimes is a scary word to organizations, but again, I take a very approachable stance with it, which is not to come in and judge or tell anyone what they're doing wrong, but just to take a look at their programs, their services, their spaces, help them look at, you know, what are you already doing and maybe doing really well? What are you doing and maybe need some improvements and then what doesn't yet exist, but really needs to be put into place. And I really walk organizations through that all the way from the language that is being used to marketing materials to registration processes to the courses or services that they're offering to the community. And it's interesting because a lot of a lot of organizations will say in general you know we're ADA compliant and they're very proud of that and, and as they should be right I mean I the ADA I, I always like to preface this with saying the ADA is incredibly incredibly important. It was instrumental It's the foundation to why disability rights, was started and why disability rights exist today but the reality is is that the ada is over 30 years old so sure we should absolutely recognize and celebrate the ada but at the end of the day it's a pretty outdated law as far as laws go i always say just because something is or some place or space is ada compliant does not mean that it's fully accessible i have been to plenty of spaces with friends who have disabilities and we get there and find that even though by the law they are considered legally compliant my friend still may not be able to access it um one of the things that i talk about in my audit and in my trainings is universal design and that is the idea that people can access spaces programs services really anything regardless of perceived barriers and perceived barriers meaning age, race, religion, sexual orientation, or preference and disability. Like those are examples of perceived barriers. I talk a lot about if someone is truly committed to access, why it's really important to take it a step further from the ADA and start with making sure that you're compliant But then looking at how do we take it just a little step further to make sure that we are universally accessible.
0: You know, um, let's talk about that a little bit further, because I think that we talk about the space that people are actually residing in quite a bit, you know, looking at rails and steps and uh, is the elevator functional? Uh, Is the doorways wide enough? But there's also this piece about onboarding individuals who may have a disability, either physical or unseen. Uh, A number of disabilities go unseen or unknown unless the person self-identifies. If even the hiring practices seem to be very limiting, can you talk to how you help organizations with being more inclusive with accessibility as they go through the hiring process. And again, I think of the HR professionals that I have that are friends that, you know, could always use those pointers.
1: Absolutely. And like anything, it starts with what is the first step? The first step is usually somebody applying for the position and the interview process. And I always ask, you know, do you offer or ask if anyone needs an accommodation as part of that? Now, the reality is, is again, here's another one of those dichotomies. And the reality is that there there are statistics out there that say up to 80% of employees with non-visible disabilities may not have disclosed their disability to their employer for fear of being stigmatized or retaliation. That is where I think HR professionals and organizations, you know, employers really need to take a deeper look at how are we setting ourselves up culturally? You know, are we creating a space of inclusion and belonging where people feel like they can disclose or even not disclose and we're going to meet them where they're at? I mean, the reality is that people in general, you know, we tend to want to treat them like a cookie cutter. I call it the cookie cutter approach. You think about the way that school classrooms are designed. Everybody sits in the same seats and the same desks and is supposed to learn the exact same way. And the reality of that is I could take a task, right, and assign it to a group of 10 adults, 10 leaders, 10 executive directors in our community. And I would guarantee that all 10 would probably approach it somewhat differently. The whole idea of, you know, employment and universal accessibility is that you're accommodating to all of your employees, regardless of whether or not they disclose their disability. Because at the end of the day, if you meet them where they're at, they're going. They're more likely statistically to perform for you, and so that may mean that you give options as far as desks. You know, not everybody's sitting at the same type of desk. Maybe they have a standing desk. Maybe they have different seating and they can sit on an exercise ball at their desk because they really need some of that movement to stay focused. Unfortunately, right now, there's such a, uh, we're kind of at an impasse with the hiring process of people with disabilities where there are a lot of people with disabilities who are completing degrees and who are very competent people. I actually just did an interview with a young man a few days ago who had to pursue an employer three times, even with direct references about his capability to complete the work in order to be given an opportunity to try this position simply because of his obvious disability. Oftentimes, I think employers participate in discriminatory practices without even realizing it because, again, it's that intrinsic. It's ingrained in us where we assume that people with disabilities are less capable or less able without giving them an opportunity to demonstrate their abilities. You know, I say the best thing to do is to be able to give someone an opportunity, even if it's through an internship. You just outlined a perfect
0: example of the limitation of, of, uh, there's some short-sightedness there, sounds like, you know, we don't know all the circumstances, but there's also this um, underlying if um, the opportunity is why, why do you have to have them, be tried out on an internship to see if they'll fit. This is not, um, you know or limit where they can go that's always been fascinating to me is when well this doesn't isn't a quite fit here so maybe if you're over here then then that's uh that's a better fit you no one has the right to talk about where people can and cannot go if it's a public space especially
1: and that's exactly my point about the internship um the number of times i've heard employers offer someone with a disability an opportunity to volunteer for example people with disabilities deserve to be paid in equitable positions just as much- as someone without a disability so I I completely agree with you you know um, too often we look at what we consider and I'm using quotes deficit you know meaning maybe somebody is unable to write or someone's blind or someone needs sensory breaks or has a disability where they they need movement break we oftentimes focus so much on that that we're forgetting to look at well what are they able to do like how do they perform you know what are they capable of circling back actually to that example I gave of the young man that I talked to a few days ago he not only ended up getting the job after the third try but he has been moved up multiple times to higher level positions now I'm glad that that was the end result for him but at the same time, why, because of his disability, did it take him trying three times to be given the opportunity when he had the qualifications yes. from the beginning? Yes,
0: I think you're talking about a, the onboarding process needs to be th- some advisement taking a look carefully at the onboarding uh, process, but also with the retention. Because now if he is moved, you also don't want uh, a situation where someone's moved in position and that they may need mentoring. If, even if they didn't have the disability or a known disability, the mentoring should still take place. And you don't necessarily need someone who has a disability to mentor somebody else who has a disability. I've actually witnessed that too. Well, this will be a better fit because this person has a disability. They can mentor this other person. That's not necessarily the case. It, it may be because of maybe they have situations where they've got workarounds about, parts of the job that they need a they've got a few more challenges with, but it doesn't mean that that's the only mentor they should have. So that I totally agree with you. And then I think that retention part is so critically important so they can stay successful.
1: Absolutely. And the reality is that's for, you know, it's intriguing because again, I think people get so caught up on disability that we forget, but m- most employees in general have those needs, right? I mean, how many employees, how many of us look at our first job we ever had and think, oh my gosh, there are things that I did that I would never make, those mistakes again right because you're learning and you're growing as a professional and you know what and the same token a lot of us have had to go through different trainings for growth opportunities or we've had to have difficult conversations about where our strengths are and where there may be other areas that we don't hold as many strengths and we may need to shift focus I always say to people really Really focus more on what the person is capable of. What are their qualifications? What are they able to do? And then let them advocate for what maybe they can't do or they need to have accommodations for.
0: That's really mm-hmm. good. And do you do you see that as effective? You know, what are what are some of the when you choose clients to work with? You know, what are you looking for as um, those are effective leaders to be able to take in the information that everybody's going to accept your probably your audit. Or what suggestions? What do you look for in a client?
1: I would say a few things. One, commitment. You know, are they truly committed to access and inclusion? Because I always say it's a marathon, not a sprint. You know, it's not going to happen overnight. It takes time, especially because we're an evolving society and inclusion and access have not always been a priority. So I would say commitment. Another thing that I would say is seeing the human side of things. And I know that sounds really simple, but it's, the reality. I think the more that we can see the human side of things and we can see people as people and see them as, you know, everybody, like I, I always shy away from words like typical and normal and special needs, because the reality is all people have different needs. And what is normal? Everybody is different. There, there's no one who operates the same. And so I look for organizations who are really open to seeing people as people, then meeting them where they're at. And I think that when organizations are open to that, then they're more likely to be successful in not only hiring and retaining people with disabilities as employees, but also becoming accessible and inclusive in everything they do from the hiring process to what how their board reflects to you know their programs services their space. That's
0: excellent. That's excellent. Well, I there's this is a subject that we'll have to come back and and talk about um, some further uh, developments in the space. I know it's always changing. These there's rules and regulations. I think people uh, you know you do your best, especially if you're leading an organization, either large or small, uh, to be inclusive and to create belonging. Even the language has changed. So we'll definitely have to have you back on the, seeing what the changes are and um, what further advisement. But I can't thank you enough for bringing that knowledge today, Dawn. We really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for having me here and letting me talk about a topic that I love. <laughs> Excellent. And thank you to everyone who joined me today. I, this has been a topic that, again, the topics that we talk about, about uh, staying straight on topic point and hopefully strengthening your awareness and sharpening your mind about um, these critical topic areas if you are in a leadership position or you're looking to uh, get others to lead in spaces like this so until next time the pen leader podcast is hosted by dr shan gore and brought to you by mason associates ltd creating customized solutions for growth in the areas of leadership development, strategic planning, and culture building. Find out more at www.MaysAssociatesLTD.com. Don't forget to subscribe to the Pin Leader Podcast and share with others.